we're kind of smaller today, and I wonder if, I know my family, that sickness I told you about last week turned out to be pneumonia in one of my sons, and um, so it's been just kind of a, it's a long, it seems like it's going through the family slowly, <laughs> one at a time, and it's pretty serious, so I hope there aren't a lot of peop people out because of illness, but um, we will pray for them, and let's begin. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the sunshine and the break from the rain. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word. May we be people who are sober-minded about your word, who love it, and who want to be changed and transformed by your word. I pray that this would, again, never be an academic exercise. I pray that you would give me clarity of speech and um, of thought to help make this passage make sense and that you would be honored in all that we do today. Please be with those of us who aren't with us today. I know a lot of sickness and traveling. Please help them wherever they are, to be faithfully pursuing their relationship with you. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as as I always like to do, let's start with review. And I don't want us to forget, in reviewing the New Testament, that this is connected to everything we learned last year. So just with me, put your thinking caps on and go back to Genesis 1, where God has created a perfect world. And then in Genesis 3, where man falls. And in Genesis 3, we were given the promise of a serpent crusher, right? And so we start, at, and at that point, we've started tracing the seed because it's through the seed redemption's coming. So we've been tracing this thread of redemption that's coming through the seed. And so the seed is promised in Genesis 3.15, and then we see that the seed's going to come through the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the land, the seed, and the blessing. That, th that seed was going to bring blessing to the whole world that was going to come through God's promises to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. Then we were given the Mosaic Covenant because God had raised up from Abraham's descendants. He had created a nation, and they were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, remember? And they were supposed to represent to the whole world the truth about God and God's agenda for the world. And they were supposed to, in a sense, be missionaries. That term's on the Old Testament, but that's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to reach the world with the news about God's plan. And the covenant, the law, the Mosaic Covenant, was to teach what God likes, what he doesn't like. And then all of those covenants got rolled into the Davidic covenant. Remember, we said the person who rules the Davidic covenant rules the world, and that the promise now that the seed has come through Abraham is going to come through the line of David, it's go going to be a king. And then the rest of the, New the Old Testament, we have been looking for the king. <laughs> is the king coming? We saw that in the book of Chronicles. We saw that in Kings. We've been seeing it, the prophets are prophesying about the king, and we've been looking for him. And then that brings us to Matthew. And as I was preparing... Um, for this week, I was listening to a professor, and he said, if you could summarize the Old Testament in one word, what would it be? And I thought, well, we've just studied this. I've got this. Um, redemption, covenant, kingdom. And I was thinking, like, maybe, and you know what he was looking for? Expectation, or yearning, or longing. And, as, and then it made sense to me, after you just go through all of it in that little brief synopsis I just did, you're just built with this anticipation of like, when is the king coming? When is he going to be here? We're looking for him. We're hoping for the king. And then you turn the story to Matthew, and that's what we've studied these past few weeks, the arrival of the king. And from the genealogy to the magi to Herod to how Jesus passes all the tests of the king and the temptation in the wilderness, the king has arrived. And then last week we saw, right, that he's teaching. He's teaching the, the law has been distorted by the Pharisees, and he's teaching this is what the law is about. And then he authenticates the message with his miracles. And so the first 11 chapters of Matthew are just laying out for us, the king has come, and this is the king. And it couldn't be more clear. But we're going to see today that instead of having this wonderful, joyous expectation that it's finally happening, 
the king is going to be rejected. We're going to see that in Matthew 12. And that's the title of today's message, The Rejection of the King. And that's also our first point, The Rejection of the King in Matthew 12. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And before Jesus is rejected in verse 22, we're going to look at this conflict of, of the Sabbath. And the reason we're going to look at this is because there's this escalating opposition to Jesus. There's this escalating tension and fighting against him that's going to lead to this rejection. And so we're going to see that in this Sabbath controversy, if you will. And to understand what's happening here, we actually have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, when the Lord creates the Sabbath. So in Genesis 2.1, you can listen as I read, it says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Abner Chow, in teaching on this section, helpfully summarizes what's going on in Genesis 1, building up to the Sabbath. And he uses an example from the negative to the positive, but if you saw an idol, you would see, the you in your mind's eye, I guess you think about the idol, the deity behind the idol. So if you, you, that's what idols represent, the deity behind them, right? Well, before the fall, in Genesis 1, man was created what? In the image of God. And just like an idol reminds you of the deity behind them, man was to remind all of creation, all of the world, of God. We hadn't fallen at that point. We reflected his glory. And what we did was to point all of creation to God. He says all of creation is led by man. Man is the image of God, and we point to God. So we inherently, by design, lead crea creation back to God. The entire design at this point of creation becomes not just good, because remember after every day God says it was good, it becomes very good. So as creation has been completed, and as man does the work that God has created him to do, and everything that we do, everything that we enjoy that God has given us, and even our work, remember, was enjoyable before the fall. As we are enjoying his creation and the work he's given us, we're reflecting everything back to him because we're his image, and the whole world is filled with the glory of God. That's how the creation is supposed to work. And this sets up for the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath is a day of rest. And remember, it wasn't because God was tired that he rested. Remember, rest more um, meant that he ceased his creating work and now went into the work of enjoying his creation. And in Scripture, rest and blessing go hand in hand. And we see that right here in this verse. Sabbath is a day of rest, and God blessed the seventh day. He blessed the Sabbath day, and that's because on the seventh day is the day where we are enjoying the maximum blessing. It's all done. We're not waiting for something to be created. We're not waiting for something to be added on. It's all done, and now we're enjoying the fullness of what he has made and enjoying God fully. And isn't it just amazing that our enjoyment and our pleasure before the fall is what brought God glory? You know, that I think so often we think now if we're honoring God, we're like denying something. But before the fall, our, what we enjoyed brought God glory because there was no sin. There was no, and that's what, right, the Westminster Catechism says. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's how creation is set up. And he doesn't just bless this day. He sanctifies it. He sets it apart. So the task of the day of, of Sabbath is to enjoy God's blessings and glorify him. And it's the only day, remember, we talked about this too, there's no evening and there's no morning. That doesn't mean it wasn't a real 24-hour day, but it doesn't write that in the text. Why? Because it was supposed to be a continual state. The Sabbath day was this thing we weren't supposed to start, we weren't supposed to end. We were supposed to enter into this rest and continue in this rest. That's, this is how creation is made. This is the purpose of creation. But the fall cuts it short. 
right? The fall ends that we are just in that continual rest. So when the God brings the law, when he raised up the, the nation of Israel in the book of Exodus, what is Israel supposed to do? What is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant? The sign of the covenant is the Sabbath. And God tells him, you're supposed to keep the Sabbath. And the Sabbath is one of the most repeated and one of the biggest c- deal commands in the Old Testament. It's such a big deal that, again, I'm just hoping you remember last year, that Jeremiah says, after everything Israel has done, Jeremiah tells the people, if you would just start keeping Sabbath, God won't send you into exile. God says to them, if you'll keep Sabbath, I won't send you into exile. That's how big Sabbath is to God. And so what Israel keeps Sabbath It was so when all the nations around them looked at them, they didn't just go, oh, you have a nice God who gives you a day off. As people looked at the nations around them, looked at them, they're like, why aren't you working on this day? And they were to then use that as an opportunity to tell them, and again, Abner says, Israel is to announce with the Sabbath that God has an agenda. God owns all of creation. He owns all of time. And he's going to bring us back to that rest. Remember, Israel was the anti-fall nation. He's, he's supposed to show the world that God is going to reverse the curse, bring us back to the purpose of creation, which we see in the Sabbath. And so when you get to Hebrews 3 and 4, and it's talking about rest, it's talking about this rest. In fact, when you get to Matthew 11, if you just look right up here and right above Matthew 12, where you are, and it says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's the rest he's talking about. He's talking about this state that we were supposed to all be in that he is going to bring back to the world. So that's why Jesus, in every single gospel, every gospel narrative tells you that the Pharisees and Jesus have conflict about the Sabbath. It is something they debate many times, and they argue about many times, because the Pharisees understand the big deal the Sabbath is now. They didn't seem to understand it during Jeremiah's day, but now they've been in exile for a long time, and they're like, huh, if we'd kept the Sabbath, we wouldn't be in exile. And so they've made all these additional rules to make sure that you never break the Sabbath, and they also understand that the person who controls the Sabbath really is saying they're the person who controls the agenda of the world, right? Because God set the agenda at the Sabbath. And so this is a real authority struggle. Who has authority over the Sabbath? And that brings us to our text today in Matthew 12. So it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Okay, so if you are familiar at all with um, Judaism today, you know that they have their oral traditions in the Talmud and the Mishnah. And that's where they've recorded all these Pharisees' rules about how everything has to be, you know, how they've interpreted the law and what you have to do. And so according to the Mishnah, the disciples have violated the Sabbath about four times over. You're not supposed to, I just have two examples, cutting. If you cut something that creates friction, friction is work. If you grind something, that's milling, milling is work. If you harvest, and so they have all these rules that this is what's work, they're defining work. But if you actually go to the Mosaic Law, they didn't break any laws. In fact, you, as long as you weren't making money by selling on the Sabbath, it was commanded that you were supposed to leave some wheat for the poor people to glean and to eat. You just weren't supposed to be making a profit. So they haven't actually violated the law. They violated the Mishnah, the oral tradition that the Pharisees have set up. But that's not what the Pharisees say, is it? They say your so- lo- disciples are doing what's not lawful. And so right away we see that the Pharisees have taken their tradition 
and they have elevated it above scripture. They have taken what they're adding, and they're saying this is more important than scripture. And then Jesus responds, and he says, have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and how those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What's he talking about? You remember back when David was running from Saul. He goes to Ahimelech, the priest, and he says, I'm starving, give me bread. And he says, we only have the bread of the show, the show bread, and Ahimelech gives it to him. And it's not actually violating the law. David can't take it, but Ahimelech can give it to him. The priests have the right to the bread. The priests have the inheritance, but they can choose to give up that right. So David can't, on his authority, take it, but the priest can choose to give it up. And remember, David lied to the priest. And so that was wrong, and nothing in this passage is saying that's lawful. David shouldn't have lied to the priest, but the priest is, is he's evaluating David's need. He sees one who represents the king. Remember, David's his son-in-law, and he thinks he's on a mission for the king. He thinks David's doing something for Saul. And then he has this very great need, which was going to be for the benefit of the kingdom. And so in assessing this need, Ahimelech gives up his right to meet the greater need. It's not wrong. And so Christ is putting himself parallel with David. He has this need of food, right? And the priest can give up this right. In fact, this shows us that the priest, again, sorry, um, that the law, this is teaching us something important about the law, the law in its structure never intends to harm other people in need, but to help them. And it has that capability built into it. The priest, as one who interprets the law, demonstrates this. Okay? Again, I was quoting from Abner Chow there. So Jesus is saying the law is for our benefit. The law is not to hurt people. And just like the law has this built-in capability to help David, I am benefiting from the law. And then what does he mean when he says the, sa- the priests are, s- are profaning the Sabbath in the temple? Well, they have to technically work, don't they? They offer sacrifices in the temple. But again, that's work that God prescribed for them to do. John MacArthur says that, in sh- um, in the, again, that the priest must do work on the Sabbath in the temple, and showing that some asp- and this shows that some aspects of the Sabbath restrictions are not inviolable moral absolutes, but rather precepts pertaining to the ceremonial features of the law. So again, the, and then and we'll just read Jesus' words because he's going to sum up what the, what the Pharisees are doing wrongly here. If you had known what it means, I'm in verse 7, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And now with all that background of Sabbath, you understand what a great proclamation he is saying. He says, I am in control of the agenda of the world. I am the one who has the authority. And you who think you are the experts on the law have missed the entire point of the law, which is mercy and to not harm people and to love God and to love people. You've missed the whole point. And obviously the Pharisees do not take kindly to this because what's the very next story? Another controversy on the Sabbath. So he went from there and entered their synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Always trying to to catch him, to trip him up, right? So that they might accuse him. And he said, which of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he heals the man, right? So there's these constant conflicts because they want the control and they don't want to submit to Christ. They've missed the whole point of the law. 
And as this escalates, this is going to bring us to the king and kingdom being rejected. As we come to verse 22, there's a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus heals him. And as we saw in our lesson, and we've been seeing the whole year, but especially in our study of Isaiah, what is true? What, what are the works? When you heal the blind, when you heal the, meet, the mute, and when you can cast out a demon, who does that work? Who does Isaiah say is going to do that work? This is the work of the Davidic king. So they are seeing, again, the works and authentic, authentic, authenticating miracles of the king. They're witnessing the king himself do it. Not one of his, This isn't a prophet who represents him. By the power of the Holy Spirit, and they say that Satan did it. This is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They say that the prince of, of the demons has done this. That's Satan, right? If you go back to our, what's the big picture we're looking at? The conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. So you have the seed of the woman, the hope of the world, doing these miracles, and they're saying it's by the seed of Satan. And this is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And this is a true, there's been many little rejections of Jesus along the way. But this is, and it, in this gospel, Matthew sets it up as a, a very defining moment. The whole rest of the book of Matthew is going to change from this point because they have rejected the king and the kingdom. In Luke's gospel, he kind of builds up to it a little bit more because he has a different emphasis. Both are true. They're just different angles on the same event. But Matthew wants to show how culpable the Jews are for rejecting their king, how they are guilty for rejecting their king. In fact, look what Jesus is going to say. In starting in verse 25, Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom your sons cast them out, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then he goes down, he's in verse 31, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. How serious was this rejection? This, what they, what they had done, he's saying, is unforgivable. And then he goes on to say, a tree known by its fruit, right? There's good fruit or there's bad fruit. So, this is just showing that it's come to this climax, and from this point on, Jesus is going to change how he does ministry. So first chapters 1 through 11, even we saw this in chapter 10, he's been getting the word out, right? He's been getting, the, he sent his disciples to go throughout the land and get the word out to repent because the kingdom of God is near. And he, when people do miracles, he lets them tell people Jesus did this. And after this, he's gonna, when he does miracles, he's going to say, don't tell anyone. After this, he's going to teach in parables. The parables are judgment. It is judgment to conceal the truth from the hard-hearted. It will be understood by the true believers, and he will explain it to his disciples, but it is going to be what Isaiah said, that they will see and not see, and they will hear but not hear. And that's how this is going to be fulfilled. This is judgment. And he is going to spend a lot of time now particularly focusing on the disciples so that he, they are prepared for ministry after he is gone, because now the kingdom's going to be delayed. The kingdom's not going to come now. It's going to come later because of this rejection. And I just want to take a little aside right here and just say, this is not plan B. That God delayed the kingdom is not because, again, Matthew has this focus on the Jewish people and on their accountability. But if you were looking at Luke, 
there are stories, and I don't want to Sarah, steal Sarah's thunder for when she's going to teach on Luke, but there are stories leading up showing that Jesus always had a plan to go to the Gentiles. And what, how do we know that? We know that from the Old Testament, right? Because what is the Abrahamic covenant supposed to do? Bring blessing to the whole world. What was Israel supposed to do? They were supposed to bless the whole world by telling them the truth. And in Luke's gospel, Jesus shows himself as the true Israel, fulfilling everything that Israel didn't do. So when he goes to the Gentiles, we know from the Old Testament that was always the plan, right? He's fulfilling what Israel didn't do. So it's not plan B, but Matthew's emphasis is on the culpability here that they have in rejecting the king and the kingdom. And now the kingdom is going to be delayed, and we'll see in chapters 16 and 18, the church is going to be revealed, which hasn't been revealed up until now. So immediately following this, there are these parables about the kingdom. Okay, so we're going to point to and the kingdom parables. The king has been rejected, kingdom parables because they have um, concealed truth. And we even even in verse um, near chapter thirteen, look with me in um, verse eleven. And he answered them, "To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away." This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And then he says, he quotes Isaiah, and he fulfills it. So the Pharisees who did have truth, but they'd added to it, and they rejected it, even the truth, it's going to be taken away from them. And those who truly follow Christ and believe in him, they are going to get even more. They're going to understand the fullness of scripture, which, you know, the canon's still not complete yet. They're going to receive it all. So then he has these parables, and the first one is the parable of the sowers. And I'm just going to, we looked at these in the lesson, so I'm just going to talk about the main points of what's being discussed here. And the parable of the sower is to show them that the kingdom is going to be largely rejected. There are four soils, but only one soil bears fruit and endures. So three-fourths of the soil reject the teachings of the kingdom. And then we have the wheat and the tares showing that until the kingdom comes, good and evil are going to flourish together. You're going to have the true believers, and you're going to have evil, and they're going to be mixed until the judgment comes. But judgment is coming. And there will be a separation of them before the kingdom comes. Then you have the mustard seed and the leaven, saying even though you're waiting for the kingdom, the kingdom is still coming. It's not going to fail. And it's go- just like the mustard seed becomes the largest tree, right, in the garden, this kingdom of God is going to fill the whole earth. It even reminds me always of Nebuchadnezzar, where he, he had the dream of the tree that filled the whole earth with his glory, right? God's glory is going to fill the earth. It's still going to ha- You're going to wait, but it's still going to happen. And while you're waiting... The parable of the hidden treasure, the parable of the pearl. You're waiting for the kingdom, but entrance to the kingdom is worth any cost. Whatever you do, gain entrance into the kingdom. And so as we come to the end of those parables, we realize that now we're going to wait for the kingdom, and Jesus turns his focus to training his disciples and preparing them for ministry after he dies. He's going to reveal that he's going to die and that he controls the timetable. So the next two points kind of overlap each other. So we're going to talk about the kingdom conflict, and we're going to talk about Jesus training the disciples, but there really is overlap in them, so I just want to say that so you're not confused as we go through. The first few chapters, while he is training the disciples, you see this escalating opposition to Jesus. And why we need to see this is it's, it's part of the bigger narrative, if you're looking at the book of Matthew, of, of what's just happening in Jesus' life. And everything's leading up to the cross. And so before the cross, there's intensifying opposition and anger against Christ, and we're going to see that in these stories. It's going to be foreshadowed. And, but through that opposition, Jesus is still teaching the disciples. But then right before he enters Jerusalem, there's going to be this emphasis on training them that we're going to see. So first we're going to look at this intense um, conflict. 
So in Matthew 14 and 15, again, we went to the lesson, so we're just going to go big picture here like a helicopter just scanning the landscape. His hometown is going to reject him. Herod is going to fear him. The Pharisees hate him. The crowds that follow him are fickle at best, right? There are true disciples in the crowd, but they are the small portion of the crowd. Most of the crowd is following him for what they can get from him. We see that Jesus often is seeking rest and solitude for prayers of time as he's preparing for this. We see John the Baptist's death. But we also see the compassion Jesus has as he feeds the 5,000 and the 4,000, the two different times when he does miraculous feedings. But what is the crowd's response when he feeds them? They want to make him king now. Because if you have a king who can raise the dead and who can make food from nothing, you have an invincible army, right? Again, they see this as a military leader. We can win now. Rome can't beat that. If If he can do this... You could, you know, think of all the sieges and all the ways that you try to, we have endless supplies and anyone who dies, we don't, we'll never lose our troops. And so they see this from a military way. But Jesus is in control, right? The crowds don't make him king. He's not ready to go to Jerusalem and die yet. And he controls the crowd. He dismisses them when he wants to. And we see he controls everything about his timetable. More specifically in chapter 14, where you see the death of John the Baptist, this is a foreshadowing of Jesus' death. John came preaching a message of preaching repent for the kingdom is near. Jesus followed him preaching the message, repent for the kingdom is near. John died for his message. Jesus will die as well for the same message. He will also be rejected. When you see Jesus walking on the water, it's again him showing his control of the timetable and avoiding the crowds. But it's also showing the disciples, I am the king, right? There there can be, it's so different than what they looked for. Over and over again, he's going to give them pictures and examples that he is the true king, he is the true controller of the world, and even though they're waiting, he is the king, and they don't need to doubt that. So we show his authority over creation, he shows his power, and he's also, again, controlling how his ministry is going to run. And again, we see that, that just that beautiful tension of human responsibility and God's sovereignty that the Jews are culpable for, for, not, for rejecting the king, but Jesus is in control of all of this, right? He doesn't, no one takes his life, he lays it down. He doesn't go to Jerusalem before he's ready to lay down his life. The Pharisees aren't controlling this narrative, though they are responsible for what they've done. So that brings us to chapter 16, where for the first time the church is explicitly revealed. And in verse 13, Jesus says, sorry, in the beginning of 16, just to continue the overview, Jesus just continues through chapter 15 and 16 to contrast true religion versus the Pharisees' religion, right? What does it really mean to love God from your heart versus giving lip service? He goes through, and we looked at that in the lesson too, but that's what's happening in 15 and 16 leading up to verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. So again, his ministry is focused on training them, not getting the word out anymore. But now he's revealed that there is going to be a church. And there's going to be a church while we're waiting for the kingdom. But he also reveals in verse 21 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed on the third day. Sorry, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Does that remind you of Jesus' temptation when Satan offered him the kingdoms without the cross? That's really what Peter wants here. He wants the kingdom, but he does not want the suffering, and he doesn't want to submit to what Christ is saying the plan is. The plan is to suffer and die and to wait, and he's saying, no, far be that from you, Lord. And why is Peter falling into this trap? Because he's setting his mind on the things of earth. And I just wanted to pause and think, where are we unwilling to submit to the Lord? Peter's a true believer, right? He's going to endure. He's going to die for Christ. We're going to see that play out in the Gospels. He's a true believer. He's a true follower. But right now, he doesn't want to submit to the plan. But even it also reminds me the Sabbath, going back to him doing the Lord of Sabbath, was Israel was supposed to show the world that we're supposed to abide in God's agenda. This is God's plan, and this is God's agenda, and he's not going to plan B. He's going to bring us back to his agenda laid out in Genesis 1. That's what the Sabbath represents. That's what submission to Christ represents. So how is that playing out in our life? When we consider our life and we make our plans, are we praying that it is in will and in, in abiding in God's agenda? Are we really seeking your kingdom come? Are we really seeking to submit? And I was trying to think even more specifically, like what does that look like in my life not to submit? And I think if you have, I think that sometimes it can seem, um, depending on how long you're a Christian, it might be easier or harder to do this. I think it might be harder to do it the longer you're a Christian because you've been maturing in your faith. And so I was saved at a very young age and raised in a Christian home. I was saved at the age of five. And in God's grace, he saved me from, I didn't go through some terrible teenage rebellion or walking away from the faith in college or these things where I had this really stark contrast in my life of before or after. But Jerry Bridges has a book, and I actually haven't read it, but the title always gets me. It's called Respectable Sins. And I just think, how many respectable sins are we comfortable not submitting to the Lord in? Are we people who are comfortable with a lack of prayer in our life? Because we're commanded to pray without ceasing. I was really struck a couple weeks ago when Pastor Brian said joylessness was sin. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> okay, I'm going to have to evaluate my life for a little bit on that one. Joylessness is sin, right, in the Christian life. Are we joyless? Complaining. Are we comfortable complaining with little things? What about a love of comfort? Is that something that we make our life, pr- are we pursuing in our life comfort? What about just a love of the world? Where have you slowly started liking TV shows you shouldn't, or movies you shouldn't, or music that you shouldn't, and it slowly hardens your heart? And you know, the TV industry knows that. You know how they first introduced the LGBTQ, I don't know how many letters we have now, agenda? Through comedies like Will and Grace. They made us laugh at it first. You know, it's just funny. Why are you just being such a stick in the mud? Like, obviously we know it's wrong. It's just funny. It's not so funny anymore, is it? So where are we unwilling to submit and not give something up because it just seems like not that big of a deal? And here, I just, and you ex- I just expected when he said that, and he's calling Peter Satan, right? <laughs> Get behind me, Satan. And I just expected the reason this happened for Peter would be something so much bigger than you're setting your mind on the things of man. 
And it just really struck me that we have to be so careful. We are what we think. Well, right after this, Jesus goes to the transfiguration. And in the transfiguration, he's again showing them and making clear to them, I am the king and the kingdom is coming. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. So Peter's missing this. Moses and Elijah aren't on par with Jesus, right? <laughs> He's kind of treating them like that. But the other thing is Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets, right? Moses brought the, and so here is Jesus, and I just think this is a beautiful picture because they represent the whole picture, really. You have the law, the prophets, and the fulfillment in Christ, right? You have everything that they looked forward to and everything they expected is Christ, and he's here with them. And it's the full picture. It's the new covenant. It's the king. It's the one who's going to bring in the kingdom. It's here. And Jesus is just telling them, what you, it's true. What was told by the prophets and told about the kingdom, it's coming. And as you see me transfigured, I am the king, and it's going to happen. Not now, but it's going to happen. And then what does God say? What does God say? He was still speaking, and behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And I just felt like that tied in so well with right above. Set your minds on the things of God. Listen to him. God decided it was time to speak physically to his disciples, and he said, listen to my son. And we listen to him through his word and through obedience to his word. So this brings us to the fourth point that Jesus is going to train his disciples. And in chapter 17 through 20, which is where our lesson covered, it's just lesson after lesson of what they need to know about the kingdom. And again, we looked at that so carefully in our lessons that we're just going to do a big picture flyover. And so we see, what does it mean to be great in the kingdom? It means you have to have a child like faith, full dependence on the Lord. And after that, he follows that quickly with, be, hell is real, right? Hell is real, and you don't want to go to hell. When he gives the parable about um, the, sorry, I lost my spot, about the angels, I think. Temptations to sin, sorry, chapter 18, temptations to sin. You don't want to lead people to hell. You don't want to cause them to go to hell. Hell is real, and it's, it's um, you, want, you don't want to. You want to instead, the parable of the lost sheep, reach the lost. There's great value in reaching even one sinner who has not, who, who is lost. And then he says, we need to forgive our brothers. And I wanted to camp on this one as well, because it's such a serious parable, and because it's so, forgiveness is so, um, crucial in understanding the gospel, right? And so you have the man who was given, this huge debt was forgiven, and then he won't forgive this tiny little debt, right? And um, Christ says, right, that at the very end of that, in his anger, the master delivered him to the jailers until they should pay all his debt. And so my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. We are called to forgive. And there is nothing that you have experienced no suffering, no injury, no wrong that justifies a lack of forgiveness in your life. Nothing. You might think, that's really harsh, and you don't know what this person did to me. And I don't. I don't know all your stories. But look what they did to Christ. You have not suffered like Christ has suffered. You have not been perfectly innocent. 
you have not been perfect in every way and died completely unjustly. And when we get to there, we'll see over and over and over again. And he is the one who is your example, who is your enabler, and who is calling you to forgive. He is the one who can transform that because he has forgiven you. On the positive side, my pastor back in California used to always say, you are never more like Christ than when you forgive others. We say all the time we want to be like Christ, forgive. We are called to forgive others. Then he talks about the permanence of marriage, and he talks then about the rich young ruler, which is really talking to us about how we have to give up idols in our life, right? This man was rich in possessions, and I just thought, do you possess your possessions or do they possess you, right? What is controlling you in your life? And he teaches them that they have to give up everything, right, for the kingdom. He teaches them that uh, the laborers, I love the, uh, the laborers in the vineyard story because it's a picture that um, salvation is freely granted to all. You can be the thief on the cross and have been saved a couple hours and you get entrance to heaven, and you could have been saved your whole life and you get entrance to heaven, right? That when you're granted salvation, you're granted entrance into the kingdom. He teaches them if you want to be great in the kingdom, that you must be humble, that it's the humble who are truly great. So who are we serving, right? What idols are in our life? Are we serving God or are we serving them? Are we humble? I was thinking about that too. And um, last week we saw that to be great in the kingdom, you had to honor God's word. And this week we're saying to be great in the kingdom, you have to be humble. And there's such a connection there because if you're truly honoring God's word, it's going to produce humility in your life. And I was even thinking, I'm reminded every single week, I never come up here and share anything with you that I haven't received, right? First Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you've not received? Nothing, nothing. And so if anyone ever says, oh, you did a great job, I just passed on something I was given, right? I was, uh, and it, this also ties into, too, the cost of discipleship, right? He, he reminds me again of the cost of discipleship and taking up your cross. And when you take up your cross, you're supposed to deny what? So we tend to think when we take up our cross, well, I need to give up my time, or maybe I won't have that ice cream. Or may, we think about it in terms of, but it's actually giving up you, it's not these things you give up, it's you. You truly become, we talked about this in Exodus, a slave to Christ. You, I was reminded again, um, listening to Admiral Chow on this, and he was saying, when you read the biographies of missionaries, and I, uh, uh, he, some of them that he mentioned, I had read. So when you read about William Carey, or you read about Adoniram Judson, Adoniram Judson lost multiple children, three wives, I mean, all these things that going and taking the gospel were never gone, just huge cost. And they say, I never sacrificed anything. I think, oh, course you did or how godly they think that but they really had the right view because when you have denied yourself you have nothing to sacrifice right you have nothing to give up because you've already given up all that you are he also said it's easier to understand in a shame cult a shame honor culture than an american culture in a shame honor culture if you're going to take on christ and take on his name you give up your name you give up your family you give up how you function in society and how you have wealth and how you, every, everything's tied to your family and how you function in your family. And to take on Christ means you're literally, it's a much clearer picture of what that means. So we're people who have denied ourselves because it's an all or nothing proposition. You can't 75% do it. You have to completely do it or not. And this is the call that Jesus is making clear to the disciples. That I'm going to leave the kingdom is going to be delayed. I'm going to establish a church. He makes that also clear in 18 when he says, here's how you deal with sin in the church. He's trying to teach them how they're going to 
they lead. They set up the church in the beginning, how that's going to be. And these are what my disciples look like. These are who my disciples are. And as members of that church, this is what we are called to be as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your teaching. We thank you for your son and his great forgiveness. Forgiveness that we could never touch. We could never forgive what we have been forgiven. We thank you for his great love. We thank you that he revealed the truth to true believers. We thank you that the king and the kingdom are still coming and that our hope is in them. And we thank you that you are the Lord of the Sabbath and you control the agenda of the world. And we pray that we would truly be disciples who follow you and submit to you the way you have called us to submit, not the way we define it. And that we'd work hard to deal with any sin in our life that is hindering our obedience to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.